This is episode 2 in our Murder at Lake Waco series. A trigger warning for our listeners. This Lake Waco series contains gruesome depictions of murder and mentions of sexual assault. And in this episode, in particular, discusses the autopsies of Kenneth Franks, Jill Montgomery, and Raylene Rice. I advise proceeding with caution. Sergeant Truman Simmons stood silently, staring down at the lifeless body of the young girl. Her long, dark brown hair was a stark contrast to the still shiny gold necklace that hung around her neck, the chain now broken and partially embedded in the wound. She had been gagged with her own blouse, and her hands were tied behind her back with a strip of cloth. The officer could tell that she had been dead for some time, with ants and pill bugs already crawling over her blood-stained body and flies having laid their eggs in her nasal cavities. Years of investigating these homicides, and it never got any easier. But he couldn't stand there and mourn these kids, nor could he take his time wondering about the killer and his motivations. Right now, calls had to be made. Very difficult calls. It was the morning of July 15th, but Dr. Mary Gilliland was already exhausted. Almost on her way out to get a strong coffee, she was instantly jolted awake when three bodies were rolled into her lab in the Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office. Dr. Gilliland is an unassuming woman, with quick movements and a no-nonsense air about her. She's just over five feet tall, dressed in practical shoes and glasses, with a blunt-cut hairstyle. Despite the overwhelming workload and the nature of her job conducting autopsies, Dr. Gilliland remains dedicated to uncovering the truth behind each death that comes through her door. And now, she had been tasked with performing three autopsies by herself with only two lab technicians to help her. For several minutes, Dr. Gilliland examined each body one by one, trying to make sense of the story sprawled out before her. As a skilled pathologist, she knew that examining the bodies of murder victims could often reveal important clues about the killer's behavior. But what she was looking at was pure madness. Out of the five murder victims brought to the Dallas Forensic Lab each week, only one is typically a woman. This time, Dr. Gilliland was faced with two young girls in the prime of their lives. But before she could work on them, she decided to work on Kenneth Frank who was fully clothed. Every item of clothing, from his shirt and denim jeans to his white socks and running shoes, plus the shoelaces that bound his hands, the watch still taking away, and his sunglasses, would all be meticulously cataloged and put through tests. As she cataloged his clothing, Dr. Gilliland noticed a small, 
unprofessional tattoo on his right bicep, bearing his initials KF. He also had a dollar bill and a nickel in his pocket, along with a pack of cigarettes and a small gold earring. She went from examining the personal effects of a typical 18-year-old to a not-so-average, rather gruesome scene that was the body of Kenneth Franks. Kenneth had 20 stab and cutting wounds to his chest and neck, 10 of which had reached his heart, 6 to his lungs, and 2 to his liver. Any one of these wounds could have been the one to finally kill him. But what caught Dr. Gilliland's attention were the numerous slicing wounds and painful gashes that had not penetrated his chest cavity. These wounds were likely inflicted first, and they indicated that the killer had taken his time, savoring the young man's suffering before finally ending his life. No weapon was found on the scene, but Dr. Gilliland could tell that the blade was a single-edged knife, roughly one-half to three-fourths of an inch in width and about five inches long, most likely a buck knife commonly used in stabbing homicides. The wounds were slightly downward, suggesting that the killer had stood over the victim while stabbing him from left to right. Based on this evidence, Dr. Gilliland surmised that the killer was likely left-handed. Photographs were taken, the body was cleaned, and more pictures were taken. The internal organs showed nothing out of the ordinary. It seems Kenneth had eaten a hamburger and french fries shortly before his death. It was chilly in her lab, but Dr. Gilliland was sweating profusely. After two grueling hours of going through the young man's final moments, it was time to examine the girls. Dr. Gilliland began with Jill Montgomery. As she examined the body of the young woman, who was most likely a victim of sexual assault, her instincts led her to check her hands first. In such cases, defensive signs often provide valuable clues. Skin fragments and hair samples from the attacker can often be found under the fingernails of the victim. But this time, there were no such traces. The young woman had clearly put up a fight, as evidenced by the deep cuts on her right hand and fingers, possibly from trying to shield herself from the attacker's knife. But she didn't manage to gather up evidence in the process. Dr. Gilliland's job was more of a detective than a doctor, searching for any evidence that could lead to the culprit of the crime. As she continued her examination, the severity of the crime became more apparent. The girl's upper body had 17 wounds, including nine stabs to the chest that damaged her heart, liver, and lungs. There were five other torture cuts in the same area, and her nipple had been cut off from the left breast. The most devastating wound was the cut to her throat. But what was more horrifying was that none of these wounds, not even the slash to the throat, would have resulted in a quick death. In fact, 
it's possible Jill was still alive an hour after the wounds had been inflicted. Even before the autopsies, Dr. Gilliland had instructed the technicians to take the standard oral, anal, and vaginal swabs for possible semen traces. The rape kit report was negative, but Dr. Gilliland noted the red contusions on the vaginal wall, leading her to believe that the girl had been sexually violated. It took an hour and a half to complete the examination of Jill Montgomery's body, and as Dr. Gilliland saw the girl's personal belongings, including a small gold necklace, blue hoop earrings, and a high school graduation ring with the initials NCG being placed in an evidence folder, she sighed heavily and turned away, unable to shake the image of the slow and torturous death from her mind, and she still had Raylene Rice to do. Raylene had 11 stab wounds across her entire body, in addition to having her bra tied around her ankles and her red and white top tied over her mouth. There were also signs of severe internal hemorrhage, and the knife that stabbed her had repeatedly penetrated her lungs and left ventricle of the heart. The slash across the neck had caused her necklace to get embedded in the wound. Despite the rape kit coming back negative, Mary Gilliland found evidence of genital injury, leaving no doubt in her mind that Raylene had been sexually violated. As the day came to an end and Dr. Gilliland removed her surgical gloves and apron, she was left with a tally of 48 stab wounds on the three bodies. The autopsy was far different from one performed on a deceased person with unknown causes. No further tests were necessary to determine the cause of death for Kenneth Franks, Joel Montgomery, and Raylene Rice. As the doctor prepared the paperwork to release the bodies to their respective funeral homes, she thought about how Waco, Texas would never be the same again. And she was right. As the news of the murder spread, horrifyingly packaged in sensationalized news headlines and TV coverages, parents became stricter with their children, forbidding trips and social events of any sort. Women who once shopped at night now made sure to go during daylight and return home before sunset. Everywhere from movie theaters to restaurants saw a dip in traffic, and rumors of a satanic cult in the wooded areas surrounding Lake Waco began to surface. These stories, blown out of proportion, couldn't have helped the families of the victims, who were contending with the difficult task of arranging a funeral and burying their children. A day or two had passed since the funeral. The parents now wanted answers, and Truman Simmons would be the one to give them some. Simmons revisited the crime scene, the troubling memory of the three young victims lying lifeless in the woods, still haunting him. He gritted his teeth, determined to bring the killer to justice. But 48 hours had already passed, 
And as any detective would say, if you don't solve a murder within 48 hours, the chances of ever finding the culprit become slim to none. And it had been five days now. But there were several other threads to pull, and all hope was not lost. First of all, they had some stories to corroborate. Jill Montgomery did stop to pick up her check, and Simmons knew because scattered remnants of her check stubs were discovered near the parked Pinto in Coney Park. Further investigation had also revealed that Jill had cashed a $226 check at a local supermarket earlier the same afternoon. The girls had been pretty busy, starting with a visit to the Rangers Hall of Fame, where they caught up with Lou Booker, Jill's former boss, before stopping at El Chico Restaurant. They did all that before calling Kenneth Franks and going to Lake Waco. Along with useful information came a bunch of rumors and false stories, but through it all, Truman Simmons and his team, which included Detective Jane Evans and Raymond Salinas, came up with a suspect list. It was time to ask questions. The first one was Brenda Douglas. Brenda was one of the teenagers that frequented the park with her friends, and several of her friends called the police and told them that Brenda had been going around telling a certain story. Rumors of a confrontation between Brenda's boyfriend and Terry Hugh had circulated throughout Waco in the wake of the Spiegelville Park murders. To the cops, she explained that Hugh had bragged to several people about his knowledge of the crime, claiming that the young girls had been raped and their throats had been cut. Information that nobody else in Waco should have known, aside from the police, the lab that performed the autopsy, and the perpetrator. Raymond Salinas delved deeper into the matter, attempting to verify the time frame of Hugh's alleged remarks. According to Brenda, the altercation had taken place between 8.30 and 9 in the evening. The story, however, quickly unraveled as other witnesses gave different times and further investigation showed that Hugh had the habit of claiming involvement in various murders that were covered by the media. It turns out it was a dead end. One of many. (sighs) Salinas sighed as he pursued the mounting stack of papers on his desk. The investigation had been bogged down by an overwhelming amount of information, with much of it proving to be nothing more than unhelpful tips from street dwellers and panicked citizens. The sheer quantity of it made it difficult for the detectives to coordinate their efforts effectively. It seemed like every detective in the team was working on a separate investigation, with leads being duplicated or neglected altogether. The situation was becoming increasingly chaotic, and it was a challenge to keep up. After more interviews and more dead ends, there was a small ray of light. It appeared in the form of Lisa Cater, a young girl who had known the victims and felt she had some information that could help the investigation. 
under the guidance of patrolman Nicoletti. Lisa recounted the details of a heated argument she had seen between Kenneth Franks and a man named Manir Deeb, also known as Lucky, who ran a convenience store near the Methodist home where she lived. According to Lisa, the argument had arisen due to a disagreement between the two over Gail. Who's Gail? Nicoletti asked. One of the girls of the home, Gail Kelly. She and Kenneth were good friends, and Lucky didn't like that one bit. I think he wanted Gail to be his girlfriend. It wasn't a lot, but it was worth looking into. Detective Simmons already knew who Lucky Deeb was. He had arrived from Jordan a few years ago and opened his own store, the Rainbow Drive-In Convenience Store, and it wasn't far from Lake Waco at all. The 23-year-old immigrant had a known animosity towards Kenneth, and Jill and Raylene were probably just collateral damage. Simmons began his investigation, gathering witness accounts of the relationship between Deeb and Kenneth, and eventually sat down to interview Gail Kelly. As the interview progressed, Simmons had an eerie feeling and asked Kelly if anyone ever told her she looked like Jill. Turns out, people did make that mistake quite frequently and would even ask Kelly if she and Jill were sisters. This detail stuck with Simmons and would prove to be a key piece of evidence. Perhaps Jill was the target because she was mistaken for Gail, and Kenneth and Raylene turned out to be collateral damage. And this was later confirmed by Kelly herself. One night, as the detectives were wrapping up at the station to go home, a call came. Kelly had just returned from the movie theater with Lucky Deeb and a friend. Detective Simmons picked up the call, and before he could say a word, the screams came from the other end. He did it. He did it. He confessed. Though he then claimed to be joking, it seems Deeb initially admitted to committing the murders, and Kelly didn't think he was kidding. In the morning, Simmons shared his new information with the chief, also mentioning that Kelly said Deeb was planning to leave the state since the bank was foreclosing on his store. Whatever they had to do, they had to do it now. The police swarmed the humble store by Lake Waco's parks and arrested Lucky Deeb. More details come up. The nature of the crime, Deeb's accomplices, and Deeb taking out a sizable life insurance on Kelly's name, claiming to be her common-law husband, all came to light during the course of this interrogation. In the next episode, we revisit the crime scene, now through the eyes of Lucky Deeb and his accomplices, and learn more details about the murder and motive. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.